and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it has been an incredible week of sport from the Paralympics on the equestrian side. Team GB's four riders are coming home with eight medals, including the team gold. So it's just an incredible and brilliant medal haul and just lovely to see more success for our British riders out in Japan. We'll be talking much more about that later in the podcast. We kick off by chatting to eventing world champion Ros Cantor. We found out more about her ride at Victon Five Star this week, Pencos Crown Jewel, and what it was like to be the alternate rider at the Tokyo Olympics. I can't say it was an easy position to be in because it, it, it wasn't. Trying to persuade your brain that you might be competing in a few hours' time is quite a hard thing to do when you probably aren't. As well as reviewing the Paralympics, we'll be talking about the need for change to improve the lives of disabled people and we'll also find a few minutes to chat about what happened at the Land Rover Blair Castle horse trials last week. Finally, personal trainer Katie Bleatman joins us again. This week, her focus is on core strength. A common question I ask any rider that is looking at improving their fitness would be what are your goals? And improving my core strength is every single time one that comes up, whether it's a male or a female rider, regardless of the discipline, core strength is always, always a goal. So that's enough of me. Buckle up your noseband. Let's get started. So I'm delighted to welcome our guest to the podcast today, eventing world champion Roz Cantor. Hi, Roz. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. Thank you. Great to have you on the podcast. So when this comes out, we're all going to be deep in the excitement of the five-star competition at Bicton, where you are riding Pencross Crown Jewel. Can you tell us a little bit about her? How long have you had her? Where did she come from? And so on. Yeah, so she was bought by her owners, Annie Macon and Kate James, as a foal. Annie has always had um, a big interest in breeding, not just horses, anything. She just likes breeding. (laughs) And I think um, Jasmine, as we call her, was advertised in Horse and Hound. And she was instantly drawn to her breeding. So her daughter persuaded her to um, go for it, I think. And they bought her. Um, and then they used, I think, the Burley um, Young Event Horse classes to go and watch different riders. And I was one of the riders that they contacted and came to look around the yard. And so Jazz came to me as a three-year-old, an unbroken three-year-old. So we've had her all the way through. So um, she's been with us for a long time now. She's kind of, I call Jazz kind of my my last original. She's I had kind of four young horses at the time that were all from new owners and I, I hadn't long set up on my own, having been with Judy Bradwell, and she so she was one of my first, and she's kind of the last remaining one. So, she's she's great. Oh, that's lovely that you've had her all the way through. And just talking of her breeding, she's by Jumbo out of a mare called Cornish Queen by Rock King. And I know that you and I spoke about her at the Bicton Four Star in June, where she finished in the top ten. And there was actually an interesting breeding link between her and Lordship Scraffalo, who was second in the Four Star there. Can you just remind us about that link? Yeah, so um, her and Lordship Scraffalo are half brother and sister, so they are from the same mother. And a lady called Penny Wallace, she owned the mother and bred Jasmine herself, which is why she has the Pencos prefix. And then the mare was leased to the Lordship Stud, so Rittle College Stud, 
when Walter Lordships Graffalo was born, hence why he's got the Lordships prefix, but actually they're from the same mare. And Penny Wallace um, had another horse with me up until last year that was also from the same mare, and, and she was by Parco, and she's been sold. But, um, yeah, so they're, they're really, really great competition horses, very, very different, but they have the same, the same kind of toughness when it comes to a competition. That's interesting that they are quite different characters. Tell us a bit more about that. What's, you say they have the same toughness and what is different about them? So Jasmine is small. She's 16 hands. She's, I mean, they're both quite blood horses actually, but she looks, she's got the real jumbo look about her. So she's a little stockier and slightly, you know, a slightly more common type head. She's, um, whereas Lordship's Graffalo is, is very dainty in his appearance. He's a big bodied horse, but he has dainty legs and a dainty head. Jasmine likes her own company. Um, she doesn't need cuddles. She doesn't need affection. She doesn't need strokes. She just likes to be left alone, pick her up for a job and off you go. Whereas Walter is a larger than life character who uh, you definitely know Walter's on the yard when he's on the yard. Um, he picks things up. He plays with things. He nibbles. He licks. He can't stand still. Um, and so they're complete opposites in that way. One would be, you know, the last one at a nightclub if it was a human and the other one would be uh, knitting at home, I think. So, yeah, they're quite funny. Oh, that's sweet. And um, obviously, Jasmine went very well, as we were saying, at the Bicton Four Star Long in June. Was that the result that sort of said to you that she was ready to make the step up to five star now this autumn? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's always been kind of the ultimate competitor, uh, Jazz has, um, but but she isn't very big. And I've been kind of very lucky so far that I've had really only taken all-star B and then Shearer up to five-star level. Um, and she's got a slightly shorter stride than them and she wouldn't um, quite give you the feeling of scope that they do. So we just wanted to make sure that we had a couple of really good four-star longs under our belt and Bicton was ideal for that because it was such a challenge before we kind of made the leap to going five-star. But she's she kind of one of those horses that doesn't fill you with huge amounts of confidence in the warm-up. She's quite economical in her jump and things like that, but then she turns into an absolute demon when she's out on the course. So <laughs> it's um, it's just, just um, you know, having the confidence to really go for it with her. And, and also... She was with Tom Jackson when I was pregnant, so had a bit of a break. And um, it's just taken a bit of time to to build our relationship back together again. So, And with COVID and things, it's just been a bit stop-start. So um, Bicton was ideal because it's kind of really cemented that she was she's on her game and ready to go. Yeah, that's a really interesting one that you've had to sort of all the way through. And then she had some time with another rider and, and then came back to you. And obviously you did that with a few of your horses. How did you find that? Yeah, I'm, it was very interesting. I enjoyed watching them. I enjoyed going to the events and being able to kind of analyse and, and watch things from a different perspective on the ground. Equally, you know, horses always feel a little bit different when someone else has been riding them and some are more sensitive to riders than others. Um, and, and Jazz being that kind of quite quiet and timid character definitely got amazing results with Tom and he did a fantastic job with her but it's taken me a little bit of time to get her to feel like my horse again. Whereas Lordship's Graffalo is a bit more robust in that sense and, and pops straight back into our routine. So it um, it's interesting. I've learned a lot from it, um, but it definitely wasn't a, a, a bad thing at all. 
Yeah, interesting one. I'm just looking at her results and she had three top sixes in, in four-star shorts with Tom. So that was obviously a, a good partnership as well while you had that bit of time watching. Um, and just thinking about Bicton, Ros, you went there, as we said, for the four-star road in the short and the long in June. Had you been there before or was that your first time at that event? It was my first time riding. I went to Bixton to watch when I was pregnant, but no, I mean, we're kind of seven hours away, so it wouldn't be our kind of <laughs> uh, first port of call for an event um, unless it's up at the higher levels. Yeah. And what did you think when you were there in June? We had a really great time. My horses all went very well there. You know, the, the stabling was nice. It was a really good atmosphere, very well run. Of course, um, certainly made us all kind of stand up tall when we walked it and think, goodness we haven't had a course like this for a while but all of my horses had an enjoyable experience there it, it walked big and it rode big but it rode fair and I'm lucky with the Pencos crown jewel that she you know she has got quite a lot of blood in her so she's fitter now than she was in the spring and um, she coped well then so you know I've, I've got a fair bit of confidence that that she'll go the distance. Yeah, I think hilly is the thing I'm hearing about the course and everything I've seen preview-wise is that the terrain's going to be really demanding. So it'll be interesting to see how that event goes. And we'll look forward to seeing Pencos Crown Jewel, Jasmine, as you call her, out at Bicton this week. And Ros, I wanted to chat to you a little bit now as well about Tokyo because you're not long back from that Olympics. And we talked a lot in the build-up to the Games over, over years about the fact there were only three riders in the eventing teams and then there was an alternate rider who had the tough job of being there, preparing for each phase, potentially being substituted in, but never knowing if they were actually going to ride. And you were that alternate rider for the British team. You didn't get the call-up to ride, but you were there all the way through supporting our team and preparing to ride. And I wanted to find out a little bit about how that was for you. You had a late call-up into the spot with the wonderful All-Star B who was world champion with you in 2018. Can you just talk us through sort of how that happened? You were in quarantine with him as a reserve, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was in quarantine anyway. Yeah, so you went into quarantine as a, as a non-travelling reserve and then found out towards the end of that period that you were going to be travelling out? Yeah, the decision was made on uh, Saturday and they left, the horses left on the Sunday night. Gosh, so you had a really, a really short turnaround. How did you sort of get yourself ready in, in such a short amount of time to be away from home for what was it going to be, sort of two weeks? Yeah, well, we, we kind of knew we had to be prepared anyway. Um, I, knew, I knew I was um, number five, so I was next in line to go. Um, and I knew that um, All Star B would have to travel to Belgium in that position in case something went wrong from the journey between here and the airport. Um, so from the point of view of packing and things, trunks and everything were going to have to be packed anyway. So that wasn't too much of a nightmare. And, you know, now I've got a child and things like that, a preparation is even more key. So we had things in place ready in case I was going to go. Um, so it was just a case of, of kind of getting into gear and making it happen, really. Yeah, I was thinking that about your about your daughter Ziggy as well, that you had to have everything in place for, for leaving her behind. And that's interesting that All-Star B Albie was always going to, to travel to Liège as the fifth horse, that that sort of preparation and attention to detail in the British team of having a fifth horse go that far in case something happened. And when you got out to Tokyo, did you very much sort of prepare in the days leading up, assuming you were going to ride? How did you sort of manage it? 
Yeah, I did my very best to do that. Um, I can't say it was an easy position to be in because it, it, it wasn't. It was probably the most challenging position I've ever had to do from getting myself mentally prepared because there aren't quite the nerves that you would normally have and trying to persuade your brain that you might be competing in a few hours' time is quite a hard thing to do when you probably aren't. It's kind of managing being prepared and not disappointed at the same time. But yeah, I rode Albi like I was going to be going down that centre line as the first team rider if something happened to go wrong, you know, that, that night before the dressage. And that's what I, I tried to do the whole time. The same for the cross country and, and the same for the show jumping. It, it definitely was a challenging place to be, but somebody had to do it and it was my job to do it. And, and what I did was try to treat it very much like a job. You know, if I'd gone out there as a team member, my job would have been to win a gold medal. But my job that week was to be the best reserve I could be. So that's the kind of, those were the challenges I had to deal with. Yeah. And how did Albie cope with it in terms of the fact that, you know, these horses, these experienced horses, he's what, 16 years old, they know how it works at an event. And he was trotting up probably thinking, oh, it's going to be dressage tomorrow or the day after. Did he ever seem a bit confused? Or did he just roll with it? No, he rolled with it. He got more and more relaxed as the week went on, I think, and kind of he was really ready for the Olympics you know he would have been ready to go down that centre line but the longer nothing happens you know all-star beast the type of horse that really ramps up in the last two or three weeks up to something and becomes a, a different in his mindset and everything so the longer it went on that we weren't doing anything the more he felt you know like he he started to go off the boil a little bit not not enough that he wouldn't have competed well and that, that was also the challenge. But more so, I suppose, now he's come home, but we're still working him. It's about working out how to, you know, find that peak form at the right time again. Because um, he very much is a horse that you you build up and, and you find his peak. So he was always ready that week. You know, he'd gone very well in quarantine and he, he was at his peak. He felt at his best like he had when he went WEG. So he was ready to go. Um, now the challenge for me is is making sure I can find that that again fairly you know fairly quickly, which is not something I would normally do. He'd normally run, have a break, and then build up kind of for two big events a year. So so that's kind of the next challenge, really. Yeah, that's an interesting one, and. I guess I was one of the few people who was lucky enough to actually see him in some sort of action in Tokyo because I was there one of the evenings when you had arena familiarization and saw him doing a little bit of work around and in the main arena and he definitely looked on great form and at both the trot ups looked like a very happy and well and relaxed horse. We're definitely looking forward to seeing him in action later in the autumn. Ross, just tell us a bit about the cross-country day. Presumably, All-Star B travelled to Sea Forest the night before with the other horses in case he needed to run. Yes, he did. Um, and I, you know, got up really early in the morning and drove in, you know, in the same car that Oliver was in, just in case, because the changeover was two hours before. So just had to make sure that if anything was to happen, that I was there and ready to go. Um, and I got straight in and, and rode him early, like I would have done if, if we'd been competing. And I actually gave him a little bit of a jump over the, some of the warm-up fences more because I, by that point, I knew I wouldn't be competing around the cross country, but uh, obviously there was always the potential that I would be doing the show jumping. And um, All-Star B tends to jump, show jump at his best after a cross country run. 
So I was just quite mindful of that, that I wanted to just give him an open up. So I took him for a bit of a canter on the hacking route and then took him down and popped him over a few fences so that he kind of got his blood up a little bit enough that, you know, I, I could hopefully jump him at his best the next day if I was needed. Yeah, and that must have been a super early morning because I think the cross country started at 7.45 a.m. So the cutoff for whether or not you were going to compete would have been 5.45 a.m. Yeah, so I don't, yeah. I don't like to think how early you got up. <laughs> yeah, it was early enough, I think, early enough. <laughs> yeah I think we all had a had an early early morning that day and once you knew you weren't going to be riding on that cross-country day what was your sort of part in supporting the team then through that day so then uh, my job was I just said all along that you know as soon as I knew I wasn't competing I wanted to be as useful as I could be and I was kind of happy to go with whatever job they wanted me to do so I had a stopwatch and I ended up going down and clocking everybody's two minute marker. So the first first bunch of team riders, I knew where the second minute marker was. And so I could say whether they were eight seconds up or three seconds down for every rider. So that was then inputted into a spreadsheet and then they can start to work out where our riders needed to be at minute two in order to make the time. So it all gets, you know, a bit more technical at that level. And then there were various other people doing that in different points around the course. So that was my job. And then after that, um, yeah, I was able to watch a little bit, which was quite nice help. I was had a radio, so I was ready to help if anyone needed it. But everybody was pretty organised. So, yeah, I did that job for the first hour and then and then watched. Yeah. Well, a strange, strange day and very strange week. And I know that since you've been back, you've been involved in some of the sort of celebrations. I think you went to the Team GB Homecoming concert at Wembley with the team, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, and that was um, really brilliant. Um, it was a, it was a great, a great evening, an amazing atmosphere, and and kind of nice to be able to see the athletes and see everybody else, and and it be celebrated without the restrictions of COVID like we had in Tokyo. Yeah, for sure. I was just saying uh, before before we started our interview, I was saying that um, I feel like I didn't see anything apart from the horses and I feel like I want to catch up on the rest of the Olympics now. And I've just started watching the BBC today at the Games programmes in the evening. I think it'll take me a few months to get through them. But um, yes, it's, I know. <laughs> it's great to feel like you're part of something bigger, I think, with the Olympics. And having yeah. been in that slightly strange position in Tokyo, has this sort of sharpened a desire and ambition in you to actually ride at the Games yourself? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll be cracking on and trying to get to the next one. The dream is still there. And, um, and so I, I shall continue. And hopefully I've got some lovely up and coming young horses that might make the dream come true one day. Yeah. Well, Ros, I think we all owe you a lot of thanks for uh, filling that alternate role so well and supporting the British team and being there if you're being needed. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today as well and telling us about Jasmine. Hope all goes well for you at Bicton and we will see you there. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you there. Well, of course, since we recorded that interview, Roz has been selected for the European Championships at the end of September with All-Star B with Lordship Scraffalo as her direct reserve horse. So we wish her and all the British team the best of luck there. We'll be following on the podcast as always. But for now, I have my colleague Becky Murray, our news writer with me. Hi, Becky. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pippa. How are you doing? 
I am good, thank you. I was just saying we have a very exclusive uh, party on our news review this week. It's just you and me because uh, we're recording this on Tuesday and uh, Lucy Elder is also on our news desk normally. She's on the way back from the Paralympics and Eleanor Jones, our news editor, is on the way to the European Show Jumping Championship. So it's just non-stop and uh, <laughs> you're the only person I've been able to grab for today's news review. But that's all right, it's the A-team. <laughs> but it's a crazy one. Becky, I have to say, I'm going to ask you about your weekend because I I know it was an exciting one, but I'm going to squeeze this in there first. I won a rosette on the weekend. Oh, brilliant. What were you up to? <laughs> so I went combined training with Alfie and I feel like the podcast listeners deserve to hear about this because, you know, normally it's just uh, falling off or things not going <laughs> well. But um, I actually won a class at combined training. So, yeah, we uh, we dropped down a level to the 80 rather than 90 as uh, we both had a bit of a time out with one thing and another. I think I've only ridden six times since the end of May, but um <laughs> Did a 27.5 dressage and had one down. Um, so I was astounded to walk away with a red rosette and a little bit of cash. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well done. And are you back out again soon? Yes, he's entered for Munster British eventing in a couple of weeks time. So uh, yeah, keeping keeping things realistic because as we say, he hasn't had a lot of work. So we're going to see how preps go in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, fingers crossed. But Becky, uh, more important events. You were at Blair over the weekend. Regular listeners may have noticed that Becky is Scottish. So this is a relatively local event for her, although I think still a couple of hours away. How was it? How did it go? It was brilliant. I love Blair, you know, I used to go every year as a spectator. So to be reporting this year was really special. And there is just something about the place. I heard more than one rider describe it as magical over the weekend. And I think that does sum it up. You know, it's just such a beautiful place. And I think everyone just loves going there. You know, you see so many people that are just so happy and, you know, people really plan to go there every year. I mean, try and get accommodation for Blair. You need to book about six months or longer in advance. And you've been there a number of times, haven't you, Pippa? Yeah, the very first time I went, I was working for Lucinda and Clayton Fredericks as a working pupil in my gap year. Went up at the end of that year with my little horse in the, the then one star, now two star and three or four horses for them. And I remember going up in the lorry and, and traveling up and arriving in the night. And I remember, wait, so we arrived and it was dark. And I just remember waking up the next morning and kind of stepping out of the lorry. And you're in that kind of bowl with the mountains all around you. And the, as Daisy Barkley was saying to me when I spoke to her for the column in the magazine this week, sort of the mist rising and it is as you say just such a special place yes oh it is delighted to have been there this year yeah definitely and to have Blair back after a year off last year for Covid and big crowds I think lots of people in the pictures Yes, definitely. Um, they ran to full capacity, you know, within the COVID guidelines. And I mean, yes, it was really, and the weather was fantastic. So lots of happy people. And yes, I mean, the jumps, even the cross country, the four star on Saturday night ran on quite late. But, you know, everyone was still very much there watching the action. Yeah, it's lovely to see that and to see people in the background of our pictures again. Becky, tell us a bit about the about the courses, first of all. It's, the cross country is always strong. Was there much trouble? I mean, it's yeah, like you say, it is always strong. It's a very technical course. I think riders really had to be paying attention. Um, there were some tricky fences, some angled brush fences caused some issues. And I think the three star, certainly I felt I saw some more issues in that class. 
and the water fences um you know again they attracted such big crowds that the horse had really had so much to look at and Blair is so famous for its hills and I spoke to Tom McEwen after one of his rounds and he said the terrain is another fence in itself which I'm sure is a view many people shared yeah, definitely. I remember um, I remember that first year I rode there in, in the one star, the long format one star. That was in the days of the roads and tracks and steeplechase. And um, you used to get up the hill a bit quicker and run sort of twice as far up the hill as you do now. It was a nine minute one star at that time, maximum distance for a one star and a filthy wet day. And uh, there were only a couple of rounds inside the time. And I think I pulled up from somewhere in the 60s after dressage to somewhere in the mid teens overnight by going clear inside the time cross country on that day. We won't talk about what happened in the show jumping. <laughs> um, Becky, tell us about the riders who went well and caught your eye this weekend. Well, I've got to obviously mention Roz and her European reserve lordships Graffalo. They took, uh, led the four-star short from the dressage and it was great hearing from Roz about how excited she is about this horse. Um, I think as well, the homebreds really shone. Rosie Fry won the four-star long on True Blue 2, the second, who was bred by her aunt. And the second place rider, Alice Casper, and she was um, riding her homebred, her mother bred him. So it's he was quite new to this level. So I think it's really great to see those horses coming up. And Sarah Bullimore rode the, uh, won the two-star long on Avita AP, and she looks like a very cool mare. And I think Sarah was delighted with her. Yeah, great to see Sarah on form. She's just been selected for the Europeans alongside Roz riding another homebred, talking of homebreds, riding Corroway, who's actually out of Lily Corrine, who Sarah rode at the Europeans at Blair in 2015 as an individual. They had a very late call up from the reserve bench. Sarah actually drove all the way up to Blair as the reserve and, and got the call up on the trot up day on that occasion. But such fun to see Sarah riding on a on a on a British team on the son of a horse she rode on a British on a British team so really really lovely story there um yeah you talked about Rosie Fry Rosie's a rider who's who's been around for a long time she was sort of at young rider level at, at that time and um, did a blog for horse and hound for a while and she's one of those riders who just keeps plugging away and we have so many good riders in this country who you know keep working and maybe with win, win the odd lower level international class win a good few intermediates and keep working keep working and it's lovely to see someone like that who isn't in the spotlight all the time really step up and get a win in a flagship class Absolutely. And you could see how much it meant to Rosie. I mean, she was very emotional after. I felt almost emotional myself speaking to her. It just meant the world to her. So it was so lovely to watch. Yeah, definitely. And and I know she said to you that back in 2012, she was the overnight leader in the class on Bank on Louis and, and everything went wrong in the show jumping. So she had some sort of flashback nightmares, but it worked out for her that time. And I bet that made it even more emotional. Yeah, definitely. Well, such such fun that, that Blair ran and, and ran with crowds and, and lovely weather. I'm just glancing over the pages here as we're talking and I'm seeing that sunshine and I'm quite jealous, Becky, that you were there in the sun, having been at Blair many times and got very wet. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a good week and I'm looking forward to getting back to Blair at some stage in the future myself, probably reporting rather than riding. 
But um, Becky, I want to talk to you about another story that you were working on last week as well before you headed up to Blair. We're going to be handing over to a couple of our colleagues in a moment to talk in detail about the sport at the Paralympics. But obviously, disability has been in focus these couple of weeks. And you've been working on a piece about riders who are calling for change, disabled riders. And you spoke to Sophie Christensen for that. She's ridden at four Paralympics, was selected for Tokyo and then had to step out because of horse injury. But what did Sophie say, Becky? Well, Sophie spoke out after the launch of the We The 15 campaign. This campaign was launched to coincide with the Paralympics and it was by the International Paralympic Committee and the International Disability Alliance. Now, this is a global movement aiming to raise awareness of the barriers faced by those with disabilities. And Sophie thinks it's you know, a great international campaign, but what she really wants to see is more from the UK government to make the day-to-day lives of those with disabilities easier from you know, access to sorry, employment. And she rightly pointed out, not everyone wants to be a Paralympian or elite athlete. So she wants to see more awareness and action, but away from the sport. Mm, and I know Sophie's a, a rider who, who has a job as well and works in London and I often see things on her Twitter and so on about maybe problems she's had on trains or, or in venues. She's sort of constantly highlighting those. Who else did you speak to, Becky? I spoke to an equine science student, Jemima Croft, um, who has a disability and she's in a wheelchair and she very much agrees with Sophie. She said after the London Paralympics in 2012, you know, there was a lot of talk about disabilities and people really started to take notice. But she said since then, you know, it leveled off and nothing for her, nothing really has changed. So she wants to see more done to remove barriers, particularly to things like employment. I know she's as I say, studying at the moment, but she is concerned about trying to get employment after. Yeah. And um, the government here in Britain launched a national disability strategy in July. Can you tell us a little more about about that and particularly about the reaction to it? This strategy set out actions that, you know, the government has pledged to take to improve the everyday lives of disabled people. And they are focusing on commuting and giving them better job prospects and accessible housing. And they sort of mentioned bringing in practical changes. But the charity Disability Rights UK, you know, they welcome the strategy, but they have said it doesn't go far enough in terms of immediate actions or steps that will fix these issues and, you know, remove the barriers people are facing. Mm, well, interesting that the, the Paralympics sort of brings these things into the spotlight, but there's, there's still more work to be done. Thank you, Becky. We're going to pass over to Lucy Elder and Polly Bryan now to hear more about the sport in Tokyo at the Paralympics last week. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm joined today by Lucy Elder, our senior news writer who is fresh back on British soil after the Tokyo Paralympics. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Polly. How are you doing? You've just landed back in the UK after covering the para dressage out in Tokyo. Have you come down from your Paralympic high yet? Absolutely not. I, <laughs> I'm really hoping, I'm, I'm sure this is going to carry on for a long time because I'm a little bit scared of the come down because the high is just so big, um, <laughs> <laughs> if that makes sense. I think I cried probably most of the way back on the plane just from how incredible it all was really and how much bigger it was than I could ever have imagined. Um, and I mean, eight medals for the Brits and just so many stories of people 
being there, getting there, the achievements there, and being part of that bigger Paralympic movement, my goodness me, nothing had prepared me for that. It was amazing. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine. And as you said, the eight medals that our British riders have brought home with them is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the biggest headline among those, of course, is that our fabulous British team, Sir Lee Pearson, Sophie Wells and Natasha Baker, won the team gold. Absolutely amazing. The interesting thing here is that they have continued their unbeaten streak at Paralympic Games. The Brits have won team gold at every game since Paradressage joined the programme in 1996. Um, but I think it's very fair to say that this was definitely the least likely, the least expected. Uh, the British team uh, had to settle for silver at the World Equestrian Games 2018, the Europeans in 2019. It's the Netherlands that have really taken over the mantle at the top of the sport. Lucy, just talk us through very briefly how that team gold medal actually unfolded. Um, we had strong performances from all three of our riders. It wasn't one in particular that carried the team, was it? No, exactly. So... Lee, so Lee Pearson got the team off to a really strong start with Breezer. And again, that horse is inexperienced. He's only left the UK once on his last outing before coming to Tokyo, where obviously Lee won triple gold. So he won the individual as well as the team gold and then the freestyle mm. on the final day. And his last outing before that, he had to retire at Hartbury because the horse heard something. Um, and it was interesting to hear what he was saying about coming into these games, about how much that was playing on his mind as well, because Tokyo, I think you can probably hear quite a bit on the TV at home, but it really is alive. It is buzzing at night with the cicadas, with other insects and things as well. So it was a genuine concern. So he was very pleased to survive, I think, the team mm. test was how he put it. And then Natasha Baker and the gorgeous Keystone Dawn Chorus as well. They then went and put in another really solid performance um, to edge Britain's hopes even higher. And then Sophie Wells um, and Donkar M, who that horse has never left the UK. Actually, neither has Natasha's horse. So this is this kind of brings home just how amazing their performance was. And as you said, mm. Polly, what skill they have as riders. for These horses, that first sort of atmosphere, that first experience leaving the UK was a, a real team gold winning performance. It wasn't that the other teams didn't perform, it's that we performed the best um, on these inexperienced horses. Um, and just before um, Don Cara M went in, in the 10 minute box, something really spooked him. We're not sure if it was a, a shadow or something from someone walking behind a tent, um, but it really rattled him and he was spinning round um, literally this would be within the sort of 90 seconds of Sophie going into the arena and um, for her to get that back together go in there put in a performance where anyone watching mm. at home would have had no idea that that's what she was managing in the moments going in to secure that gold was just um, yeah it really yeah. is shows the skill of our riders and how exciting the horsepower is but yeah I think the skill of the riders is what we take away from this. It's interesting you say that about those watching at home and watching Sophie in that test, because, of course, I was watching from home uh, mm. on the live stream from Channel 4 and very much enjoying it. And, you know, I could see that, that Donnie was slightly on his toes, but I had no idea at that point that that had just mm -hmm. happened. And, of course, you were out there on the ground. And that's the sort of, you know, behind the scenes coverage that, that mm. we were able to bring to our to our readers because you were out there, you know, really there on the ground following what was happening um which was fantastic and exactly it really just brings home what our riders 
really achieved against the odds. Of course, the Dutch team, the Netherlands, they did take the silver. It was so close, wasn't it? There was, I mean, it was fractions that split them. And yeah. actually, it was a it was a bit of a heartbreaking moment, I felt, when their final rider, Sana Verts, the grade four rider, she went into the ring thinking that she needed, I think it was 78.2%, a massive score, to mm-hmm. win gold for her side. She scored 78.2%, didn't she? And she looked up at the boards and you could see the look on her face that she thought she'd won gold. Unfortunately yeah. for Sana, while she was in the ring, Sophie Wells' score had actually been revised upwards slightly and it meant that she was fractionally short in the end of what she needed. And I, I really felt for her then in that moment. I was obviously very, very happy we won gold, but it, yeah. that sport for you and those ups and downs, oh my gosh, it's full of them. It really is. And... All credit to Sana because she was talking to us as that was kind of happening, if that makes sense. So oh, really? Riders get off um, for anyone that's sort of wondering when we're chatting to riders and things. So they come out, they get off, they'll help sort their horse out. The horse will go and have be cooled down in those big cooling tents. And then they come straight through what we call the mix zone. So they'll go and have a chat with the, with the broadcast and then they come through and chat to the print journalists as well. And so the way it plays out is often that, as well as you know, Polly, that this is kind of happening and scores are being adjusted as that's all going on. Mm. Um, but all credit to Sana she came in and I think the one of the loveliest quotes she said was that we've won a beautiful medal with silver and she said that they could not have been prouder of the performances that their horses have put in huge performances again from all three of the Dutch team and uh, yeah true sportsmanship there between the Dutch and the Brits yeah lovely to see her you know being so gracious in mm. in in defeat as of course is such a huge part of sport as well we must mention the bronze medalists the usa they had a fantastic games roxanne trunnell their grade one rider she won triple gold um she was phenomenal wasn't she she absolutely she just blew everyone away Yes, she did. Um, And just switching forward slightly to the freestyle to give people an idea of just how she did blow people away. 33 of her marks in that freestyle test were 9, 9.5 or 10. Like, that's incredible, isn't it? So it was amazing. Yeah, it was a real honour to see her perform and the other um, US riders as well, seeing what it meant to them, because I think this is the first time that the US, no, it is the first time that the US team has stood on a podium at a Paralympic uh, Games in dressage. So it was a huge moment for them. Yeah, it really was. And it was lovely to see. Um, and just while we're just still on the topic of the team competition, the what did the riders make of the new three to a side format with no drop score? Yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to see sort of once they've had time, once a lot of the teams have had time to sort of come back and reflect on it. But the instant reaction I was getting, obviously it was Sophie Wells, last to go, having Donnie a bit rattled before he went in she came out and it was really clear to see the relief on her face because she said she it was not a nice place to be in um, because she was just she was really concerned about you know needing to complete it had gone from being I need to get a good score for the team to I have to finish or we haven't got a score at all and she said that was a really horrific place to be to be as a rider. Lee Pearson as well said that he again thinks that while it made it exciting it does need looking at because parasport should be about inclusion and you'll have had riders there that have flown themselves and their horses all the way around the world 
for a four minute test if something goes wrong in that um and so they don't qualify for the freestyle or they're not selected for the team which of course is three out of the maximum squad four riders so someone isn't going to be riding those team tests that's a very long way to go and he's not quite sure if that's quite where it should be it's quite right yet yeah, no, it's really interesting points. And of course, we did see riders who who did only compete in that one test, the first one, the individual. Um, we must obviously talk about the fantastic Paralympic debut the fourth member of the British squad made. That was Georgia Wilson. This was her first Paralympic Games. And it's amazingly, her mare, Sakura, is only seven years old. And this was her first championship. They won two individual bronze medals in the grade two. Um, I just thought she was astounding. She has, she's so cool. She's so relaxed. She looks like she was born to ride at a Paralympics. Don't you think, Lucy? I couldn't agree more. She was just one of the absolute breakout stars of the games, uh, her and her mare. She did not stop smiling. And you could see even behind her mask, because, you know, with all these COVID measures, everyone was very much masked up. Mm. I don't think Georgia stopped smiling. I don't think she ever <laughs> stopped smiling, but it was just wonderful to see. And of course, Sakura, what a fitting name, which yes. is obviously the name for the, the Japanese cherry blossom. But she was, she has got such a cool head and so does that mare as well she said the horse didn't stop eating all the, for the entire <laughs> journey there they both just had the most wonderful time and they were so good it was it's hard to put into words that was absolutely one of the highlights of the games for me yeah, for sure. I saw a really lovely photo, actually, of uh, her and Sophie Wells, who is actually her trainer, just having the biggest hug after, um, I think it must have been after George's freestyle. And, yeah. you know, that in it, that brought home to me, actually, what an incredible um, role Sophie has played at these games, being there both as a rider and as the, you know, the anchor woman in the team competition. Um, and also there as a trainer to Georgia and a mentor and a coach. Um, Sophie is an absolute star. Yeah, she really is. So uh, just moving slightly away from the British team, obviously there were so many other wonderful riders, so many lovely horses and just the most incredible stories um, as I know that you have obviously reported on, on so many over the last week. Lucy, is it even possible for you to pick out one highlight <laughs> from outside the British team, one, one or maybe two riders that you know made you cry, impressed you the most? Who, who would you choose? Oh my goodness, how can I pick one or two? <laughs> um, so Sana, obviously, I have to mention. Uh, what I find fascinating about her, not only for being a top sportswoman, is the level of scientific detail that went into her her preparation. Um, mm. We've covered quite a lot in the magazine report this week. I thought that was fascinating. And she heard um, the band uh, who she rode to in her freestyle and actually in her team test as well um when she was in the car booked tickets to the gig went and approached him while they were signing cds and asked if they work with her um which i, I, love, I love all of that um so yeah <laughs> we also have to mention michelle george's double gold that was huge for her as well um she got a phone call from the king of belgium after no. after that as well which was fantastic <laughs> Um, Manon Clays, another Belgian rider, she, we were interviewing her when she thought that she had just been put into fourth place, which is obviously a really hard place to be at mm. um, Paralympic or Olympic Games. And so she was holding it together really well and saying lovely things about her horse, but it was quite clear, you know, what it meant to her. Anyway, 
as soon as I turned my recorder off, the scores flashed up on the screen and she started screaming because she'd won bronze, <laughs> um, which she really, really didn't think she'd done. And the reaction from the Belgian support crew around her and all the other riders and supporters around her, um, it was just one of the most beautiful moments of the games, really. So, yeah, those would have to be, I think, three of my top ones. But if I was going to be pushed a bit further, again, <laughs> there was some... You can, yeah, you're going to have to shut me up because I could go on for hours about this. But... Um, some of the Irish riders as well. Rosemary Gaffney, who's 63, making her Games debut, came out with another one of the most beautiful quotes of the Games, which I thought was, she said, I went in there a nobody and I came out a Paralympian. And I mean, if that doesn't sum it up, then yeah. Yeah. It's actually going to make me start crying again. It really, really does. Well, we don't want you to start crying again. I know you've done a lot of crying <laughs> over the last few days. Um, Lucy, <laughs> this this is the first Paralympics that you've covered and your first para championship as well that you've reported at. What were your overall impressions, your biggest takeaways from the experience as a whole? Yeah, I mean, as you said, my first Paralympic Games and nothing, nothing really could have prepared me for quite, quite what it was going to be like. And that sounds really corny and really cheesy, but it's true. And it isn't like any other event I've ever covered before, ever been to before. And you get a real sense when you're there of just the power of that movement, the power of being a part of that. And it is in everything from, you know, when you arrive at the airport to um, to the city all branded up and to arriving on the venue, which was the most beautiful venue. And the, the volunteers could not have been more lovely. And there was definitely a sadness there for the games that might have been because it would have been phenomenal with, you know, those huge um, stands full and things like that. But that doesn't take away from what the games is all about and just the quality of the sport and how much it meant to be there for people as well which I think is one of my big takeaways as a journalist as well it's always been one of my dream my dreams to to report at a Paralympics or Olympic Games and reporting on senior championships is what I've always dreamt of doing and to finally get to Paralympics it was you know for me it it meant everything it was one of my dreams mm. but it's not about me it's about it's about the riders and people being there to to do what they did on the world stage and in some of the interviews afterwards as well that for me was one of my absolute highlights was hearing people like Sir Lee Pearson that first interview he gave after winning his first individual gold about the power of love and acceptance that was incredible and I felt so privileged to be there to listen to him saying those things and again it shows the power of the platform that the Paralympics has and then of course Natasha Baker after winning her beautiful freestyle silver medal talking about um, inclusion and her wish for UK shows to have para riders there so people can see what they can do and build the sport um, and that is the only way it's it's gonna grow which I thought mm. was a really powerful message too and Sophie Wells who Sophie was talent spotted at an able-bodied talent spotting day um, again if that shows what uh, how important it is that Parasport is on TV is is out there for people to the the visibility of it how important that is um, Anyway, she had some wonderful things to say about the power of that horse-human uh, partnership and connection and how she hopes the increased visibility around these games in particular uh, will help people to see that and so more people can enjoy that. And again, it comes back to building the sport and, and what Paralympics can do for other people as well. 
And the quality as well, the quality of the competition, the quality of the horses and riders and the talent and skill we saw to win those medals. I think for me, that is going to be one of my one of my biggest takeaways from these games. Oh, well, Lucy, it's been so lovely to hear, you know, about your experience, what a once in a lifetime experience um, going to a Paralympic Games is. And, you know, we all enjoyed watching at home and uh, playing our small part in the in the horse and hound coverage. It's just been a whirlwind week. We will let you get off to recover from your jet lag <laughs> now. Thank you so much for filling us in on uh, everything that happened in Tokyo. Great. Thanks, Polly. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Polly. So now we're going over to Katie Bleakman, an online fitness coach and personal trainer specialising in equestrian athletes. Katie has evented to a high level, winning Team Silver at the Eventing Pony Europeans, and now riders all over the world can benefit from her online coaching programme, Event Rider Fitness. Over to you, Katie. So today we're going to be touching on core strength and riding and this is one of the most popular subjects when it comes to improving your fitness for riding. So a common question I ask any rider that is looking at improving their fitness would be what are your goals and improving my core strength is every single time one that comes up whether it's a male or a female rider regardless of the discipline core strength is always always a goal so first of all what is your core and you guys are probably sat there thinking oh yeah i know what my core is it's those six muscles on the front of my stomach for any of you that um eat well and train hard you'll probably have a rocking six pack anything yep that's it where in actual reality your core is everything on both the front and the back of your body and you want to think of it from kind of just below your chest to mid thigh so your um, abdominal muscles your um, side abs your oblique muscles your glutes your hip muscles everything that attaches to your pelvis is your core and it's really really important to then understand to understand the roles of those muscles and how to train them accordingly. So your glutes are your kind of powerhouse of your core and these are 100% part of your core training. So anytime you're doing a specific glute workout like a hip thrust where you've got some weight on your hips and you're going in and out of full hip extension, that is a core work, a core movement. Of course, it's a glute and lower body specific movement but it is still core you're training all of the elements of your core and it's functional to your riding again we touched on functional in a previous episode that is making sure that what you do is using movement patterns we need in the saddle and muscles that we need so in order to train your core for riding you want to make sure that you are using movement patterns that you then need in the saddle and what you'll probably see if you went into a gym or into a core class or a zoom class would be loads of sit-ups loads of crunches and loads of really poor form going on and if you went and asked any of those people in the group I can guarantee you that some of them would be like ouch my back really hurts and I can't feel my core at all and for riders we don't want to be doing movements like this a lot of you will be working your core to strengthen your lower backs and to help lower back pain if you think about it if you then spend a lot of time in spinal flexion where you're crunching yourself up you're shortening the abdominal muscles you're shortening the hip flexors and you're encouraging your back to go into that excessive flexion which you spend a lot of time in already whether that's at your desk in the car on a horse you're then going to exasperate your lower back pain so it's not going to be the most functional or the most um, beneficial movement to your riding if again you think about what you actually are trying to achieve in the saddle you want your core to kind of help you to um, remain stable in the saddle 
offset movement so if your horse was to yank you you'd want to be able to hold your seat and not collapse so where in your riding would actually a sit up or a crunch come in as a useful movement it just wouldn't and that's why you want to make sure the exercise that you're using relate back to your riding so you want to focus on movements that teach you to avoid anti-extension. So what you, I mean here is having the control to keep your rib cage and your pelvis in neutral. So if you're lying on the floor, extension would be when your uh, pelvis pushes away and you have a gap between the floor and your lower back. You want to train yourself to be able to avoid that. So you're keeping your glutes underneath you, keeping your rib cage and your hips locked down, and you can avoid anti-extension through the lumbar spine. You've then got anti-lateral flexion, which would be something like carrying a water bucket or holding a side plank. So you're training those side abs, those oblique muscles to avoid collapsing laterally. So when you're riding again, like if you find that you collapse into one hip or collapse into one side, you'll probably find that your lateral core is something you wanna be working on and maybe a bit weak um, and making sure that you do exercises that challenge this and build your lateral strength is really important. The final bit would be your anti-rotation. So when we're talking about anti-rotation, you can think of yourself in a plank position. So you're on your hands in a normal plank setup. Then what you're gonna do is you are gonna tap your opposite hand to opposite shoulder. And as you do that, you are trying to avoid any movement through your trunk and through your entire torso. So think of it as if someone put a glass of gin on your back and you're trying not to spill it, okay? And if you do spill your drink, you'll know that you need to improve your anti-rotation strength. Um, you're trying to avoid the movement. Again, like if your horse was to um, land and say peck on landing over a jump or over a big drop, you'd wanna have the core strength to be able to sit up and hold yourself in that position rather than being on their ears and before you know it on the floor. So these are the roles than the movements that you wanna be focusing on training them and why they might be useful for you. You wanna think about strengthening the front and the back of your abdominals and the sides and all of those three movements, the anti-extension, the anti-lateral flexion and the anti-rotation will do this. And another big consideration for your core strength for riding is your lumbopelvic stability. So what we're talking about here is where the lumbar spine, so your lower back, meets your pelvis and you want to have the ability to be able to keep your spine in neutral and keep your spine centered and have the ability to resist outside forces and inter interference. And this is where understanding the ability to brace and be able to really hold tension through your core is absolutely key. Just because you can hold a plank for say 60 seconds doesn't mean you have a strong core. What that probably means is you're not putting much intent and tension into the exercise. If you're working to hold a 60 second plank, you wanna get the most out of it. Squeeze every bit of your body and really think, how do my abs feel? How do my glutes feel? Are my glutes tight? That's one really simple way to improve your core movements. Or if you find that you get a bit of like a saggy back in a plank, really tighten your glutes. Think of like squeezing a lottery ticket between your um, bum cheeks, and that will really, really help you to keep control of your core. In time, you can add in things like rotational movements as well, which will help to um, improve your strength and then you'll be able to handle um, those kind of perturbations when you get and the interference you get when you're riding. But you wanna make sure that first of all, you have the strength to challenge those deep core muscles, stabilize the spine and be able to really maintain that core strength. Obviously your dynamic 
Core movements such as a dead bug will activate your muscles and it allows further progression. Um, but you wanna make sure that first of all, you have good technique in the basic movements and then progress from there. Again, core training and make sure that what you are doing is sensible. If you can't hold a plank say with good form and feel your core working, then doing something like a single leg squat to a bench with one arm in the air holding a kettlebell in your hand isn't going to be effective or sensible for you to do. So really think about what's relatable to me, where am I at, like what would be a suitable exercise for me, and then in time focus on um, slowly adding progressive overload. And if you focus on those three movements as well as training your glutes and your back muscles, you will find that your core strength improves and equally your back pain should improve alongside. Now, I've got a Facebook group for you, which you might be wanting to join if you want any more information on any of the topics that I have discussed today. If you search KKB Fit on Facebook and add yourself into the group, you can join the group, which is full of other like-minded riders working hard to better themselves. And there's loads of different information on there on all various topics to help your health and fitness. Thank you, Katie. Katie will be with us next week for the final episode in her mini-series, which is about functional training for your discipline, so be sure to check in for that. We'll be speaking to one of our successful British Paralympians from the Tokyo Games, reviewing Bicton Five Star and more, so do join us then. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast today. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.